Hi there, I'm Valerie Francis, and before we get into the episode today, I just wanted to remind you about the webinar that I have coming up on February 22nd, 2023. It's called Hook Your Reader in 10 Pages or Less. If you plan to query an agent this year or self-publish your book this year, trust me, you need this information. Why? Because you've got one chance to hook your reader and you have got to make it count. Go to hookyourreader.com to find out more, or you can also get there through my own website at valeriefrancis.ca. If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched Four Weddings and a Funeral so that we can study the middles of stories. This 1994 film was written and directed by Richard Curtis, who's Australian, by the way. (laughs) And of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, Valerie, what have you got for the genres for four, wedding and a, four Weddings and a Funeral? I think that the global genre is a courtship love story. And I think the secondary genre is a worldview maturation. How about you? I have exactly the same. Woo-hoo! <laughs> it's a match. It is. <laughs> you know, it's sometimes I think when, you know, stories um, uh, stick to what they want the story they want to tell, like serve the story. I think that makes it a whole lot easier for us to to agree on the genres or at least to get within very close ballparks to each other. I agree. It doesn't make for as interesting conversation here on the podcast, but <laughs> it makes it a lot easier for us to study the story. So anyone writing a courtship love story, Four Weddings and a Funeral is a good one to, uh, to watch. And because it's a courtship love story, that's kind of why I chose it, because right around the corner from now is Valentine's Day. So I thought a love story might be kind of fun. Plus, it's Richard Curtis, and he's a great storyteller. I did not know he was Australian. So with Richard Curtis, I was pretty sure that there would be things here that uh, we could learn from. And of course, yes, there is. Now, I'm going to change things up a little bit this week because this film offers us a chance to look at an aspect of storytelling that we don't typically talk about. And by we, I mean Melanie and I here on the podcast, but I also mean the broader storytelling community. That aspect of storytelling is the amount of time that we give to each of the three acts in our stories. Now, Sean Coyne calls that the math of storytelling. And he and Robert McKee are the only two theorists that I know of who get into this in any great level of detail. Of course, there may be others. And actually, now that I'm saying this, I think John York might be one. I'm not sure. So if you know 
of anyone talking about this in any theory book that you might have or an interview you've heard, please reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter and let me know. I would love to check it out. And my handle there is for both is at Valerie underscore Francis. Now, a quick side note here about Robert McKee's work. Honestly, I cannot recommend his books enough. Yes, they are tough to understand initially. They really do take a bit of work, but I promise you they are worth the effort. If you've ever tried reading his books in the past and <laughs> sort of threw up your hands in frustration, <laughs> I really do understand. Trust me, I do. But as your knowledge of storytelling grows, I encourage you to go back, circle back to them because they are a treasure trove of information. I'm rereading story right now. And I've already read it a half dozen times. And I'm seeing things in this book that honestly I did not see before because when I read them last time, I didn't understand stories as well as I do now. So do yourself a favor. Don't write off McKee's work because right now it might seem too complicated or it feels like it doesn't apply to novels. Just set it aside. And as your understanding of storytelling grows, revisit it. Okay, so what is this math of storytelling that I'm talking about, and how does it apply to four weddings and a funeral? Well, the math is simply this, 25-50-25. In other words, the general shape of a story is such that 25% of it happens in Act 1, 50% happens in Act 2, and the remaining 25% happens in Act 3. This is true for films and novels, believe it or not. Now... I don't for a second think that novelists are tracking their word count and making sure their stories follow this pattern, but it is a story rhythm and it happens so frequently that I think we just kind of feel it. But seriously, don't take my word for this. I really want you to go out and do your own research on this and discover it for yourself because it's really cool. Okay, so the math in Four Weddings and a Funeral breaks down like this. The beginning is 28%. The middle is 45%, and the ending is 27%. Now, I've been talking about the act breakdowns of stories for two seasons now, and I think this is the first time we've had a story where the middle is less than 50%, and yes, this is unusual. That said, there are plenty of examples, like oodles of them, where the first act and the last act uh, are less than 25%. And when they are, typically... They're about the same size as each other. So for example, if act one is 12%, then act three is also around 12%, give or take. But I'm struggling to think of another example where the middle of the story, or act two, is less than 50%. So, I mean, can that work? Well, yeah, of course. Of course it can. But when we step outside the general rules of thumb for writing, we've got to know what we're doing. So in this case, the general rule is that Act 2 is half the story, 50%. And we have plenty of examples where it's much more than half, but very few examples where it's less than half. To bend this rule while still telling a story that works, and by a story that works, I mean a story that the reader or audience will enjoy and tell their friends about, We've got to understand what the principle is. So why is it that there is a general rule that Act 2 is usually 50%? How does that serve the story? And if we're going to veer from that, how can we shorten Act 2 without compromising the story as a whole? Okay, here's how I see it, and just stick with me here for a minute. 
We started this whole podcast by saying that stories are about change. And that's true. But I want to know more about that. What do we mean by change? Change how? To whom? To what? If I, as an author, am going to sit down and write a novel, I need more information because general statements like stories are about change are impossible to apply. It's a great jumping off point though, don't get me wrong, but when I sit down to put pen to paper, what am I supposed to do with a general statement like that, stories are about change? Like, like what do I do? <laughs> uh, yes, I am very left-brained. I need to know what am I supposed to do with that? In the first episode of the podcast, uh, it was um, late night. I drilled down on this stories are about change idea. I drilled down on that some more. And I said that stories are about how one thing changes. Okay, that's good. That is more specific. But I think I can do better than that. So here's my crack at it. Stories are about how one person changes because of the experience she goes through. Although the details of the experience are specific to the story, the person has some universal quality about her, which means that the change she goes through resonates on some level with us all. The change in a story is presented like this. Act one is the before state. In other words, it shows us what the character is like before she changes. Act three is the after state. In other words, it shows us what the character is like after she changes. And this is why act one and act three go together as a unit. Act two then is the process of change. And it takes a lot for us to change. We don't do it willingly. So for change to be believable, it has to happen incrementally. If not, and if it's too sudden, like it is in Groundhog Day, it doesn't quite ring true. So I think the reason we say that act two of a story is 50% is that we need room to develop and dramatize that change so that it rings true for our reader. Okay, so the goal then is to develop and dramatize the change that happens within the character in a way that rings true and is believable. The question I have then is this. Does four weddings and a funeral accomplish this goal at a pace that's faster than normal? Because remember, act two of, a, of this film is 45% rather than the 50% that we're used to seeing. Before I answer that question, Melanie, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this. I can see you following along very patiently, but am I making any sense? Oh, absolutely. I, I Yeah, absolutely. Everything you're saying there makes sense to me, especially, you know, as we've both looked at those, the sequences, the acts and how they work and what they're actually meant to do. And I really like that breakdown, you know, last season and this season and it's reinforced is that, you know, act one and act three, you know, show before and after. And then that middle is that change process. And I wholeheartedly agree that that incremental change needs to be shown throughout that, that, that second act. And it's the how of that that I think both of us are seeing bits of this season through different lenses. And I'm so glad you raised this because I think I have 
not an answer to that question about, you know, is it too fast? But there's some really interesting things in four weddings and a funeral, which I think make it so that it doesn't work. So I'm really interested to hear what you think before I then go and talk about some of the subtext and why I think maybe it doesn't work. So I'm, I'm now I'm super excited. It's good. <laughs> ah, all right. Woo. Okay, let's keep going here. So just to remind you, the question is, does four weddings and a funeral accomplish the goal at a pace that is faster than normal? And the goal is to develop and dramatize the change that happens within the character in a way that rings true and is believable. All righty. To answer that question, I think we've got to look at the film as a whole and how Richard Curtis has structured it. It's an arc plot love story between Charles and Carrie. But Charles's friends each have their own storylines to, you know, a greater or lesser extent. And these storylines eat up a lot of screen time. With a running time of only an hour and 53 minutes, the film is shorter than the average two-hour feature that we're used to. And a lot of the scenes in this movie are played for the gags, which means they don't advance the love story plot and sometimes none of the plots at all. But they are funny, you know, Come on, Rowan Atkinson delivering the vows <laughs> is hilarious. It is pure genius. And I am willing to sacrifice uh, that screen time to let him do his thing. <laughs> the result, though, is that for the writer, there's less and less screen time available to develop that main storyline. So what do we do? This is why it's so important to know what genre you're writing in. Richard Curtis has to deliver a love story that works in a very short time with really quite few scenes. Now, because it's Richard Curtis, uh, it, I think it's a pretty safe bet that the main genre conventions will be met. So I didn't do a full breakdown of this, but here are uh, just the ones that, in my opinion, are clearly in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Okay, so the lovers meet, they break up, and they get back together. There is a commitment made, but it's not a commitment of marriage. It's, a, in fact, a promise that they're not going to get married. There is a real reason that they can't be together. First, Carrie is going back to the States. Uh, then Carrie is engaged, and she gets married. And then it's Charles who is engaged and getting married. He's the fourth wedding. We have some hinderers and some helpers. The helpers are most of Charles's friends, uh, the hinderers are Fiona, who is one of Charles's friends, because she says that Carrie would never date a man like him. So she's trying to drive a little wedge in there. And we find out, of course, it's because she loves Charles. And then, of course, there's Carrie's fiance, who by his very existence is keeping them apart. And there is the all-important proof of love for each of the lovers. Charles does not object to Carrie's wedding or during Carrie's wedding because he believes she's in love with Hamish, her fiance, the man she's marrying, and he wants her to be happy. So he puts her happiness above his own. Likewise, when Charles is marrying Hen, Carrie doesn't object to that wedding because she also believes that Charles is in love and she is putting his happiness above her own. Okay. When act two of an arc plot story kicks off, we see the hero entering the extraordinary world and responding to challenges the same way that he would in the ordinary world. There is a YouTube channel. Yes, I'm taking an aside here. Go with me. There is a YouTube channel called The Behavior Panel, 
And I warn you, it is highly addictive. Like seriously, it's like crack. But it's also a gold mine for fiction writers in terms of revealing character. I stumbled upon them in one of their very first episodes when they analyzed an interview with Prince Andrew, definitely worth watching. And I've been hooked ever since. So the premise here is that we've got four world-renowned experts in body language and interrogation, and they look at interviews with all kinds of people, and they tell us what the body language reveals about that person in that moment. One of the experts is Greg Hartley, and he says, quote, an organism does what makes the organism successful. And that is the perfect description for the hero as he enters the extraordinary world. So in Charles's ordinary world, he enters relationships thinking about how he can get out of them. So when Carrie leaves for the U.S. at the beginning of Act Two, he realizes that actually he'd like her back. He's not trying to get out of this relationship. He, he kind of wants this one to last. And this is new for him. So that's the extraordinary world. It's the, it's the extraordinary world of actually wanting a relationship to continue. He doesn't pursue her, though, and presumably this is because pursuing women after a breakup isn't something he typically does. Now, I'm making a lot of assumptions here because the film really doesn't get too deeply into Charles's character because there isn't time. Yes, Melanie and I are agreed on the genres here. It's a courtship love story with a worldview maturation, but it's really light on both counts. There's not a lot to dig into here. All right, so pretty quickly now we're into wedding two. This is Bernard and Lydia's wedding, and this is where Rowan Atkinson does the, the vows, right? And it's pure comedy. It doesn't advance the Charles uh, Carey love story at all, but like I said, I'm totally okay with that. Then we see Charles seated at a table with his ex-girlfriends, and this is also pure comedy, but it's revealing his character. Now, he does see Carrie at this wedding, and initially, he's thrilled about the possibility of reigniting their relationship, but his hopes are dashed when he discovers that she's engaged. Naturally, he deals with his emotions the way he always does. Why? Because an organism does what makes the organism successful. So he runs away. Running away in the past has worked for him. So he's going to run away again. It doesn't quite work out. <laughs> and as a way of sort of visually letting us know that this is not working out for Charles. Richard Curtis puts him in a room where Bernard and Lydia go <laughs> and they end up having sex and, and Charles is like behind the curtain trying not to listen. And then he gets into a cupboard trying to hide from them. And <laughs> eventually he's discovered. Very funny. So even though act two is shorter than usual, we still have a midpoint shift at the, and it is halfway through the film. And this is when Charles and Carrie have sex for the second time. Now this tosses Charles into chaos and the chaos in this case is complete inner turmoil. He gets an invitation to Carrie and Hamish's wedding and he's in agony over it. The woman he loves is marrying somebody else. Then to make matters worse, he bumps into Carrie and goes dress shopping with her which I thought was a bit of a stretch, but it's a, it's a rom-com. You kind of let the stretches happen. It's part of the fun. He even professes love to her in Hugh Grant's bumbling comedic way, <laughs> and it's good. Uh, but to me, this is not the real proof of love. And I already told you what I think it is. 
even though he says he loves her or he says he cares about her, that's not a proof of love. All right, then the movie moves into Carrie's wedding. And in terms of the love story, which is the main plot line for this film, when we hear Carrie say, I do, to Hamish, and the vicar pronounces them uh, husband and wife, Charles reaches his all is lost moment. Now that is the lowest point in the story for him because how is he ever going to be with the love of his life when she is now married to someone else? It's at this wedding, Carrie's wedding, that Charles reconnects with Hen. This is when the change happens for Charles. He's let Carrie go and he wants her to be happy. But because of his experience with her, he realizes that he also wants to be happy in a relationship himself. He's now moving toward being in a relationship rather than running away from it. Now, of course, it's not until Act 3 that he discovers it's not simply a relationship that he wants. It's a relationship with Carrie. But I'm not getting into Act 3 today. So in a nutshell, I think that even though Act 2 of Four Weddings and a Funeral is shorter than the standard, it still works. It still develops and dramatizes the change that happens within the character in a way that rings true and is believable, even though it's with a very light touch. <sighs> okay. Now, Melanie, I already know you don't agree with that. So bring it on. Lay it on, <laughs> you sister. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, as you've mentioned, relationships, weddings, and also role reversals are up for grabs in four wedding and a funeral from a subtext perspective. So, you know, the title, Four Weddings and a Funeral, pretty much tells us what's going to happen in the movie, but it doesn't tell us what order the events will happen and to whom those events will happen to. So it shouldn't surprise us that the events that drive the story forward are the title events. So at the beginning, we're introduced to our group of friends in the opening sequences as they prepare for the first wedding, although we are only certain about the relationship status of two of the group, and that's Gareth and Matthew. Now, this movie was made in the 1990s when marriage equality was a pipe dream and being gay was still heavily stigmatised with AIDS and promiscuity. However, the most stable and likeable couple in this movie are Gareth and Matthew, and unashamedly so. And like the other relationships in the group, this movie tips a lot of stereotypes on its head. However, before I dive deeper into the relationships and stereotypes, there's an interesting bit of backstory about why the writer Richard Curtis wrote this film. And in Andrew Wallace Cummings' article for The Atlantic, he wrote when he interviewed Curtis, and I quote, Curtis recently said that he was compelled to write the script after attending 72 weddings in five years and getting frustrated that Hollywood romances left out all the interesting bits, end quote. Now, weddings are natural crucibles for drama. Dreams are at stake commitment is for life, relatively large sums of money are spent and emotions are high. So, and if anyone has watched episodes of Say Yes to the Dress, <laughs> which I have, that's my guilty pleasure, it seems that weddings give people a license to say incredibly horrible things to the bride. Not that we see terribly bad behaviour in this movie, 
but we do see awkwardness, things like forgetting the rings, terrible speeches, drunk guests, awkward seating arrangements, verbal faux pas, and these are, I think, the interesting bits that Curtis wants to put forward and I think does quite successfully. And, you know, we all laugh at those parts of the movie. So a big tick there. That's good. But I agree with him. I think, you know, they probably are the most interesting bits of any wedding that that we go to. And they seem to be the stories that people tell as well. But anyway, back to the movie. Um, <laughs> our protagonist, Charles, is in the thick of the most humorous drama in the first three weddings. But there's also tragedy in Charles and his friend's romantic past. They are all apparently unlucky in love. And again, the exception to that is Matthew and Gareth. Now, the cast of friends appear to be upper, cl uh, upper class English who don't have their lives together in the romance stakes or in the general life stakes. Well, at least for, I think, for Charlotte and Charles, that's relatively true. And so here is where the subversion starts. The opening four words of the movie is one word, which is the F word. So we know we're not in for a traditional upper-class romance. If we think about the roles and personality of Charles, then we see that Curtis has given him the role as a changeable, flighty, romantic lead character. Now, Charles is desperate for some sort of connection that tells him there's nothing wrong with him. And as we meet Charles's ghosts of girlfriend's past <laughs> at Lydia and Bernard's wedding, we are meant to think that he's terrible at maintaining long-term relationships. His reputation as a romantic failure is embodied by the emotionally fragile and distraught Henrietta, or Duckface, and while we see this going on, we know that Charles is in love with Carrie, who we meet at the first wedding. For the audience, having this contrast between Charles's failed romantic relationships and then Carrie tells us he's not a romantic failure. And I believe it's meant to suggest that Charles just hasn't found the one until he meets Carrie. Charles is passive, indecisive and underconfident, a role that's usually reserved for women in these types of romantic movies. He frequently finds himself in awkward situations and changes himself to fit the situation. He hides out in a cupboard when Lydia and Bernard burst into the room when he's lamenting his bad luck with Carrie. He doesn't want to make waves. He will change his mind or adapt instead of doing something active about his predicament. But this always gets him into even more awkward situations. This personality characteristic is meant to make Charles's impending marriage to Duckface at the end more plausible. But is it? So I don't see any evidence presented during the movie that is that makes this a, a feasible possibility. In fact, I think it's the opposite. Despite Gareth's funeral jolting Charles and Tom into contemplating whether there really is such a thing as one person for you, Charles's marriage to Duckface is contrived and I think unconvincing. 
Now, I bring this up because during our first episode this season, I put forward the idea that setups are in the subtext and the payoffs are in the text. And here is an example of where I don't think the subtext sets off, sets up this payoff. Now, Valerie, I know you were interested in my idea about setups and payoffs. What did you think about Charles's wedding to Duckface? That's a really interesting question. I think you used the word plausible, that those setups are intended to make Charles's marriage to Duckface, Henrietta, uh, more plausible. I think it's the word plausible I'm getting hung up on because, yeah, I think she is the one, if he's going to get married, she's kind of the one who's being set up who he could possibly marry because she she's still chasing him. She clearly wants to marry him. Instead of plausible, perhaps I would use the word inevitable. So if we look at Charles in the before state as the guy who wants to run away from relationships all the time, and in act three, he's the guy who wants to be in the relationship, albeit with Carrie, she's not available. So he has to sort of choose Henrietta. I think it's sort of inevitable that he would end up getting married and that he would be the fourth wedding. And I think we can't really dig too much deeper in a film like Four Weddings and a Funeral that's a rom-com. Because I just don't think it has those layers for us to dig into. Lots of great jokes, tons of great jokes. So I think it's inevitable that he would get married to Hen, but plausible, I, I don't know. I'm I'm on the fence. (laughs) And it's a rare time that I am on the fence. (laughs) (laughs) I think sometimes when I was thinking about it, because of the way the movie is structured and it really centres around the four weddings and the funeral and there's not very much in between time, right? So time passes between those events and we don't see it. It makes the how did they get to that point a real leap of faith. Like you have to really, you just have to go, well, something's happened there and then just go with it, right, and go with it to carry on to the rest of the movie. And I think that while it is, um, there are parts of it that are comedic genius then, but there's bits of it that don't give us a narrative, a, a good smooth narrative, and I think that's what I'm picking up on, that we go from, Henrietta's in a relationship, she's happy to suddenly she's now engaged and getting married to Charles. So it's, do you know what I mean? It's just that to me is, it just doesn't work. And they do have room to develop it because it is only, the running time is an hour and 53 minutes. The middle is only 45%. So if they had wanted to develop that more, they could have. So, you know, who knows why the decisions were made? It could have been a pacing thing. Who knows? But they definitely had room to develop it. If we're thinking about ourselves writing novels and how would we approach something like this if this was the story we were writing, I would err on the side of caution and put it in. And then if it needs to come out on an edit because of the pacing or whatever, then take it out. Yeah, and that's a good point. So I would put it into if I was writing you would have the space to at least put that in and then edit that in some way. But you make the connection, which I think is the bit that's missing for me when I when I talk about that, you know, that, that sort of leap of faith. Okay, so there are two things in this movie that have never made sense to me. 
And I think I've finally been able to pinpoint them this week by closely watching it. And that is during Charles's best man speech at the first wedding, he says, I'm in bewildered awe of anyone who makes the kind of commitment to get married. However, Charles's longstanding affinity with his friends and their pride in being single together undermines the idea that Charles is afraid of commitment. So even Fiona's heart-wrenching confession of unrequited love for Charles doesn't see him shy away from his friendship group. Now, does this support the ending of the movie when Charles and Carrie agree to be together but not married? Or is this a case of cognitive dissonance? I don't think Charles has an issue with commitment. I think he has an issue with marriage, which I think is different. Now, this difference is nicely highlighted for us by Matthew and Gareth, who are not married but are deeply committed. If Charles was more actively trying to avoid Carrie after he realises he's in love with her, then perhaps his fear of commitment would have been more convincing. Which leads nicely into the second thing that's bothered me, and that's Carrie as a character. Again, we see a flip on the stereotype. Carrie is meant to be Charles's thunderbolt. But her existence is and her existence is meant to challenge Charles' belief about himself. And this works to a degree. But Charles meets Carrie, she rebuffs him, then tells him she's staying at the Lucky Boatman. He goes to the pub to see her. She's being pursued by someone else. Then she spends the night with Charles. When Charles sees her again three months later, she's engaged, but she still spends the night with Charles. He's invited to her wedding, then helps her pick out a dress. He almost confesses his love for her, but she then says to him, you're sweet, and walks away. And then at the wedding, at her wedding, she clearly tells Charles in her speech that he's not needed anymore. And then she suddenly turns up on his wedding day to tell him that she's no longer married, which incites the whole duck face wedding debacle. Right. So I won't go into turning up on his doorstep to see if he's okay, but I just want to say what a despicable way to treat not just Charles, but also Hamish. Now, Hamish isn't meant to be a sympathetic character by any means, But Carrie is not very likeable because of her actions. And as Charles's love interest, I think that is a major flaw in the storytelling. And I just, I'll emphasize this next bit. When we create characters, we show who they are by what they say, and more importantly, by their actions. And their actions define their character. Now, this is true in life as well as in fiction. So what sort of person is Carrie if we look at the way she treats Charles? And that's a rhetorical question of which I think I've given you my answer. (laughs) But, (laughs) But, yes, it's good to think about. Now, when our characters say one thing and do another, then we are presenting a conundrum to the reader. 
and the conundrum is solved by resolving the character's conflict by either aligning their actions with their thoughts or their thoughts with their actions, whichever suits the story you're trying to tell. In Four Weddings, I don't believe the cognitive dissonance created by Charles and Carrie is resolved. To me, this is a massive flaw, and it's because of how Carrie is written. Now, Fiona, Tom and Charlotte are far more relatable, I think, than Charles and Carrie. And the most emotional part of this movie is when Gareth dies and we see and we feel Matthew's pain at his funeral. And Fiona's confession of unrequited love is heartbreaking. And then there's also Charlotte confessing her dilemma to the little girl under the table, which is truthful to a fault. So these are the in-between moments that are far more interesting in my view than Charles and Carrie's love story. And I also think they create far more empathy for those characters than we have for Carrie. Now, Four Weddings and a Funeral is a funny, is funny, and the reversal of stereotypes throughout the movie is intriguing and it works well for the minor characters in this story because our empathy really lies with them, but it is a problem when we have more empathy for them than we do for our protagonist Charles and our antagonist Carrie. Now, we talked a few weeks ago about choosing complications and character action that serve your story. And in my opinion, the action of the two main characters doesn't necessarily serve this story. Subvert and create new characters by all means, but make sure that the mismatch between their words and their actions serves your story. So, Valerie, what do you think of my assessment? It's very different from yours, but I think last week we talked about when we focus on different things, sometimes it's like we're watching a different movie and we're pulling different things out. So, you know, I'll open it up. Do you agree or uh, disagree with with some of my um, analysis. I totally agree with what you have to say about Carrie. And I started to go down that road and realized, you know, the podcast would be two hours long. So I had to really focus on what I was talking about. And she's not in the movie very much. So we don't have much to go on. And this is a rom-com. If it was a drama, then we'd have a lot more about Carrie and why she does the things that she does and, and all that kind of stuff. But in the end... It's a rom-com. It's a very light touch with everything. And I think it falls apart if you put it under the microscope for too long. It's not meant to be scrutinized too much. It's meant to watch and get a good laugh at, which I did, even though it's an older movie and I knew the funny bits that were coming up, they were still funny. Let's look at an action step then. This is going to come as no surprise. What I want you to do is look at the three acts of your story. Is act one showing your main character in her before state? Does act three of your story show your main character in her after state? And is act two dramatizing the change from before to after in a believable way? Right. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss The Devil Wears Prada. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets, 
and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And if you'd like to find out about books to help you read like a writer, visit me on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author or find out more about me at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm -hmm.